If you have a Bible, get to uh, Galatians. We'll be in chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. I've been a father now for 20 years. As most of you know, I have a daughter named Maddie who is a little over 20, and then a son named uh, Eli who is a little over 18. I love my daughter. I love my son more than they can imagine. Even if I'm telling them that all the time or trying to show them that in various ways, they'll probably never fully grasp the love I have for them. I've been on staff in a pastoral role here for 12 years. I've been a part of Crosspoint since the beginning. I love this church. I love its people. My heart rejoices when your heart rejoices and my heart is burdened when you walk through trial or when you fall into sin's entanglement. One picture of the New Testament church is that of a family, and I love this family. Today in the text that we'll be looking at, we hear the Apostles Paul, Apostle Paul's heart. And in, and in the New Testament, he often compares pastoring and shepherding of people to that of being a father and a mother. And we see him make that comparison in this passage. And so I called this message the heart of a pastor and the heart of a parent because that's what we'll hear here in Paul what we'll, and what you'll hear from me. This morning, I'm speaking as both a parent and a pastor. And so Eli's here, and I'm going to be encouraging Maddie, who is off at college, to watch online later, and much of the church family is here. But here's the thing. This is not just about me, nor just about pastors and elders, or just about parents. Although this text will apply to them, it's much broader than that. This is about disciple-making. Crosspoint exists to bring glory to God by making disciples of Jesus who live 3D together. That's not just about pastors or parents who are part of that mission. We as the church, this is our mission. It's collective. Many of you are what I'd call spiritual parents. Paul was a spiritual dad to Timothy. He wasn't Timothy's dad, but he was the one who discipled him and invested into him. And so you hype leaders that were on stage, or Sun Chaser volunteers, community group leaders, teachers, coaches, volunteers in schools, aunts, uncles, grandparents, if you're a Christ follower, you are a disciple maker here in this place. And you're often operating as spiritual parents to those around you. If you're here and you're in college, I know many of you are on uh, Eureka College's campus and active in crew and active in that ministry, you're a disciple maker. You're setting an example for those around you through your, your faith, your life, your speech. As the living 3D image on the back of your program talks about or shows, we are not just followers who repent and believe and disciples who learn and grow, but it comes full circle where we are disciple makers, where we are helping others become followers and disciples and members and so on. So what's my prayer as a parent of a daughter and a son? What's my prayer for you who call this church home, who are gathered in this place? What is our goal as spiritual parents? If you invest into children or students or adults around you, what is your prayer for those people? What is your prayer as a disciple maker? Well, Paul answers that here in this text in verse 19. He says that Christ be formed in us. That our lives over time, by the grace of God, the Spirit of God, the power of His Word at work in us, would form us more and more into the image and character of Christ. Paul wrote this back in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. 
The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul's saying, if you're a Christ follower, it is no longer about you. If you're a Christ follower, it's no longer about you or I. We've been crucified with Christ. Now it's all about Him and Him being formed in us. For as long as the Lord would give us breath, our prayers that not only for the ones that we disciple, but for our own hearts, that they would be shaped, transformed more and more into the image of Christ and less and less into the image of, of ourself or our own sin. This is my prayer for you, Maddie. This is my prayer for you, Eli, that Christ would be formed in you in 2019 and in the years ahead that as you grow in the Lord, your hearts and lives would be formed more and more into Jesus. That's my prayer for this church, for the kids back in Sun Chasers, for students here in this place or Sunday nights at Hype, for us adults, no matter our age, that Christ would be formed in us more and more, that the people that we have yet to reach, that they would come alive in Christ, that they would not only be reached, but come alive in Christ and grow into Christ-likeness. But here's what we know about our sin nature. Apart from the grace of God, we resist this shaping work. Like clay that fights the hands of the potter, our pride often fights that shaping and transforming. The question any pastor, any parent, any spiritual parent, any disciple maker asks, as it relates to Christ being formed in a person, the question that we ask is, okay, what is the current direction of their life? What is the current direction of your life? As a father, I ask that question. What's the trajectory my kids are on? What about members of this church? What's the direction that they are on right now? Is the direction toward Christ being formed in them or another path? Are they swimming against the stream of, of culture and their own self? Or are they just flowing downstream with whatever comes into their life? See, there's no neutral. Where are you today as you walk into this place? Are you moving toward Christ being formed in you because you're living by faith in Him because it's no longer about you but Him who lives in and through you? Or are you moving toward being formed into the ways of this world, culture, being formed into a life that lives for yourself rather than your Savior? In this passage, we get to hear Paul's heart for people in the region of Galatia. He's seen these churches begin in the gospel and yet the direction they're headed is away from the gospel that is freedom instead of continuing to grow in the grace of god he's seen them turn back toward slavery the trajectory they are on is deeply concerning to him so last week at the end of chapter three beginning of chapter four paul's saying you belong to christ you're his you are redeemed you're you're adopted you are an heir in christ and out of that unshakable identity in Him, it should lead them to Christ being formed in them. But he's perplexed, is the, question, is the word that he'll use. He's perplexed and concerned that they're going another direction. So just as any godly parent or pastor does, he engages them in a spirit of truth and a spirit of love. Not just one or the other. He's confronting them with truth that they need to hear, and at the same time, he's doing that in the context 
of we are family in Christ. We've been brought together. We were once orphaned, now we're together. So let's work our way through these 13 verses, and I pray that you'll hear His heart and hear from the Spirit who is at work in our midst. Verses 18 through, or 8 through 11. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. Paul saw their former, meaning their lives before they repented and believed the good news. When they did not know God in relationship, when they did not belong to Christ or were redeemed, adopted, an heir. But now they do know God. They're known by God better yet. And he asked them two questions. How is it that you're turning back to weak and miserable forces? And the second question, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? So there's this progression. You're not just turning back to the former. You're not just going to be in neutral there. You're going to be moving actively toward enslavement, toward bondage. Remember the context of this letter. False teachers have come into these churches and are leading believers away from the true gospel, and they're leading them toward one of two enslaving paths. The first is man-made religion. So the Judaizers, the group name of the false teachers, are saying, listen, if you're going to get right with God, it's not through faith alone, by grace alone. You've got to start obeying the law of Moses. For instance, observing these special days as is, as is written in the law. You've got to come under the law that you've been freed from. You've got to depend upon yourself, and only then will God accept you. The other enslaving path that the the Galatian believers are falling into is that that of man-driven rebellion, meaning, hey, listen, God will forgive you, so live however you want to live. So they would wrongly interpret Galatians 2.20 to be like this, Christ has been crucified for me. And so now I can live the life I've always lived because in the end, God loves me, God will forgive me. I don't have to die to self. I don't have to die to me because he died. So now I can live for me. I can live to satisfy me. And so in the analogy of clay and the potter's wheel, if the biblical goal is for us to be formed into Christ, the people who turn back toward man-made religion say, listen, you can shape yourself through, th- through these outward actions. You can be both the lump of clay and the one that shapes the lump of clay. And the people who turn back toward man-driven rebellion say, who cares about being formed into Christ? I want to be formed into me. I prayed the prayer, I got baptized, I can just live for me now. In both of those false and enslaving paths, the person who gets the glory is the clay. To be formed into Christ, rather, as joyfully we we say, as lumps of clay, Father, take your hands, round out the rough edges, expose what is out of whack in my life, and bring it into alignment with you because i've been crucified and it's now you who lives in and through me 
Paul is saying, if you were a slave, but now you're a son, if you didn't know God, but now you know God and He knows you, how and why would you go back to slavery? Why would you return to what you've been rescued from? Why would the Israelites return to Egyptian slavery when they've been rescued? You can't have it both ways. You can't get God and keep your idols. Oil and water don't mix. So you can't mix a man-made religion with the gospel of Jesus Christ and call it faith. You can't mix the gospel with man-driven rebellion and call that biblical Christianity. Neither of those will lead to us being formed into Christ. Both will lead to enslavement. How is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? I love how in verse 8 he says, these idols, these forces, including the demonic, by nature are not gods. They pretend to be gods, but none of them are the one true God. In the end, they are weak, miserable, worthless, impotent, powerless. Pick your translation. That is what these are. So what are examples of these type of small g gods that we are prone to turn back to? Pastor Tim Keller said this about idols, and I think it's a good diagnostic, if you will, for us. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. And then he says, there are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best way to describe that is the word worship. So what are things that we are prone to worship, these small g gods? If I make more money, then I'll feel secure. If I have the esteem of others and the appearance of having it all together, then I'll feel significant. If I get married, if I begin dating, then my life will have meaning. Or on the flip side, if I'm free from marriage and get a divorce, then my life will have meaning. If I can live for earthly pleasure and just make it to the weekend and get to momentary escape, and that's where it's found, then that's where I find my value in. If my kids are successful in the world's eyes, academics, accolades, athletics, arts, anything else that starts with the letter A, then I'll feel significant as a parent. That's where I find my sense of identity. If I can just be my own king or queen and have no authority over me, call my own shots, make my own decisions, then my life will have meaning. What you worship or who you worship, including yourself, will be what you serve. It will be what you form your entire life around, where your money goes, where your time goes, where your energies go, where your heart goes. If you worship and are devoted to weak and miserable forces, you're going to be formed into weak and miserable forces. If you worship and are devoted to Christ, you're going to be formed into His image, which is the exact opposite of miserable and weak. But it is powerful, it is good, it is joy, freedom. It's His glory, not yours. 
Like a parent pleading with her child, Paul's saying these, these gods, which by nature are not actually gods, can't deliver you. They won't lead to freedom. They won't save you. They're not sovereign nor powerful. So Maddie, Eli, brother or sister in the church, what are you enslaved to? What are you turning back toward? What are you looking to try to draw power from, but in the end is weak? What are you serving, believing that it is worthy, but it is worthless? May the Spirit expose these in our hearts, bring about a sweet repentance in us today. See, Paul is pleading with the Galatians, and I'm pleading as a parent and as a pastor, why place yourself under bondage? Why handcuff yourself to what enslaves? Why serve weak and miserable and worthless things? Believer, you belong to Christ. You're His. You're redeemed. You're set free. We're called to be formed into His image now, not formed into the patterns of this world. Verses 12 through 15, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that, you could have, that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. So Paul is going back and reminding the Galatians of when he first encountered them. When he first saw them receive and welcome the one true gospel. Some sort of illness drove Paul into their region. The best guess here is that it was an illness that had to do with his eyes. And Paul was a trial. He was a burden to them. And yet they didn't spit him out. They didn't scorn him, express contempt to him. They welcomed him. They didn't treat him with hate, but with love to the point where they would have not just given t-shirts off their back, but gouged out their own eyes to try to resolve the illness that he was experiencing. I have terrible eyesight. No one has yet to offer to gouge out their eyes for me. If you'd like to gather up money for LASIK, that's fine. We could do that. But don't gouge out your eyes for me, okay? But he says to them in verse 12, become like me. What's he mean by that? Die like I have died to self and live by faith in the Son of God so that it is His life that shapes and transforms your life. He's pursued all these other things that he thought would bring joy. All of them were dead ends, cul-de-sacs. Become like me. Paul's not saying be formed into the image of Paul. Nor is he saying he's perfect. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, he says, follow me as I follow Christ or imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what he's saying here. A disciple maker says the same thing. Become like me. Watch my life. And know you're not going to see perfection. But you will see progress. And I pray that you will see the one, Jesus, who has saved me. You will see the one who is forming me. You will see the one who lives in and through me. The one I place my faith and trust in. If you're a Christ follower in here, listen. If the unbelievers who know you if the lost people around your life, if they followed your life, 
Would your life lead them to Jesus Christ, the risen one? Would your way of life and your words be leading them to freedom and salvation in Christ? Or is your way of life and your words leading them to be enslaved to weak and miserable things? If you're a parent in here, the greatest thing you can do as a disciple maker for Jesus, the most important thing you can do to lead your child to Jesus, whether toddler, teenager, adult, is for you to walk in obedience and faith to Jesus Christ, to have a flourishing and abiding relationship with Him, to not compartmentalize your faith, but to let Christ's good and life-giving authority rule every part of your life. Rule your life at home, your private life, your public life. Because I don't care if it's toddler, teenager, or adult, kids can sniff out hypocrisy. For us to walk in a faithful, obedient way, trusting in the Lord, speaking of the Lord, that makes disciples at home. And Paul is saying here, become like me. Walk in the freedom that I have in Christ and in Him alone. Paul once tried to serve and worship man-made religion and the law, and now he considers such efforts as garbage. Because what has surpassing value to him now is to know the Lord and to be known by the Lord. In Galatians, he's saying, you know that, you lived that. But from when I first met you, Paul's saying the trajectory, the direction of your life has changed. Verses 16 through 20. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have, so that you, uh, may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. So before Paul, we're going to gouge out your eyes for you. We're going to give you our eyes, whatever it takes, Lord. But now, verse 16, have I now become an enemy by telling you the truth? Disciple makers, whether it's parents, pastors, spiritual parents, if you and I are going to make disciples of Jesus, we must be willing to speak the truth in love. We must be, be willing to step into situations that are potentially awkward, messy, difficult, burdening. We must, motivated by a deep love for people, step into those because we want to see Christ formed in them and in us. We don't want them to turn toward weak and worthless things. Our culture right now is saying, if you confront, then you might as well be an enemy. If you confront me, if you tell me I am wrong, then I'm going to treat you as an enemy. Even in Christian culture, within the family of God, we fall into this false logic that we must avoid telling the truth because, well, that's not the loving thing to do. No, the loving thing to do is to engage and pursue. The unloving thing is to turn your back. If after church you went back to wherever you live in the neighborhood, let's say, a small child is playing in the street and you walked up and, well, that's, Let's, say, let's just pick, pick Main Street. Saw a small child there. You wouldn't say, boy, I hope somebody um, helps them. And I've got to go watch Netflix. I've got to go watch the NFL. 
No, you would pursue that child, I hope. Why don't we do that with other believers? Why, why do we see other believers play in the street with Mack trucks going left and right, ready for them to smack them, and we go, I, I hope someone else, pastor, can you reach out? I hope someone else reaches out to them. You have the Spirit of God in you. You've been called as a family member to pursue for their good, for their joy, and for your good and for your joy. If Christ is going to be formed in us, we need confronted. I can point to specific moments and times in my life where some loved ones loved me enough to tell me the truth and to expose this weak and worthless thing I was prone to worship. That led to a deeper formation of Christ in me. In the moment, I wasn't like, boy, that feels awesome. But it was for my good. My pride was the only thing saying it didn't feel awesome. Christ was forming me through another believer. A friend of mine said this in a meeting. He's a pastor, a local pastor. And uh, he said, somebody was, uh, another guy was confessing, I'm just struggling with this and feeling convicted about this. And he goes, conviction's good. Conviction's good. It's good, Maddie. Conviction's good, Eli. It's good, church. Because when we experience conviction, we are reminded that the Spirit of the living God is alive in us. Exposing this, this thing, saying, no, 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 that's not where you're going to find your joy. That's not going to be for your good. So repent and turn back. Conviction's good because it reminds us that God loves us and God is not done with us. And God is transforming us and forming us into the image of Christ. If you're going through days, weeks, months, and not experiencing conviction of sin, and you're like, not experiencing that, that's a problem. It reveals that your heart has gotten cold and calloused. We must reject living in an echo chamber where we are only welcoming voices that tell us what we want to hear and never what we need to hear. I love how Paul exposes here the motivation of the false teachers. They're zealous to win you over, but for no good. They want to alienate you, isolate you. The root word there in the Greek means to lock up. So they want to joyfully walk with you down a jail cell or down a hallway, and then suddenly you're like, wait, wait, wait. How did I land in jail? How did I land locked up? What happened? I thought you were for my good. And they just walk away. Paul's seen the direction the Galatians are on and the ungodly influences that are leading them there. And he's saying, they're not for your good. They don't care about your good. They don't care about your future. They care about themselves. And they're leading you toward this posture of being locked up, alienated from biblical community and the faith family. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth, he writes, until Christ is formed in you. Paul's saying, I was there when you turned from sin and self and that dead religion and the emptiness of rebellion and I saw you being born again by the Spirit. You've experienced new birth and new life. The direction you were on, which was toward Christ being formed in you, has changed though and it causes me pain 
like a mother walking through childbirth. Because as Paul writes in Romans 8, if you know Christ, you've been called to be conformed into the image of the risen Son of God. So, Maddie and Eli and Crosspointers, what is your current direction? What is the trajectory you're on? Are you moving toward being conformed into Christ or are you turning back to weak and miserable, impotent, worthless, powerless things? In this passage, we get some diagnostics, if you will, on how we can tell which direction we are on. If we're being formed into Christ or into the patterns of this world. And they deal with two subjects, community and truth. The Galatians, first of all, community. The Galatians were being pulled from gospel community, being alienated from it, and toward ungodly influences and false teachers. If you're a parent, if you're a pastor, just like Paul here, experiences great concern. You experience great concern when you see believers in Christ drifting, drifting from community, drifting from the gathering, isolating themselves because it leads to slavery. So as it relates to community, who have you surrounded your life with? Believer, who are the people encouraging you in your spiritual formation and standing with you in Christ? Or are the people that you've surrounded yourself with only going to lead you to a place where you blend in with the rest of the world? See, one characteristic of a godly community, then, it will encourage you in spiritual formation because they will tell you the truth. They speak the truth in love to you. They're not jerks. They speak the truth in love because they love you. And you and I welcome that in our lives. We don't treat the truth as an enemy or the brother or sister who speaks that truth as an enemy. You don't want to just hear things that tickle your ears. You don't resist conviction, but when it comes, you thank God that He's given you the Spirit of God in you to bring about that conviction. You seek it out, not just from others, but you seek the truth out from His life-giving Word, which is for your good and your joy. So friends, what's the direction of your life right now? If you were to use community and how you welcome or pursue truth as diagnostics, what direction are you on right now? May we all make progress by the grace of God in walking in community with other believers and in welcoming and rejoicing in the truth of the gospel that is for our good and His glory. If the worship team could come back up. So Paul finishes this section of the letter with this phrase, I am perplexed about you. If you were once a slave, but now you know God and you're in relationship through faith alone, by grace alone, you didn't have to go earn that, but you were given that as a gift. You're a son now, you're redeemed, you're adopted, you're an heir. I am perplexed, confused, astonished, burdened, that now you're turning back to being a slave again. Christ forms himself in the lives of people who will let go of all the former things of life, the things that once enslaved, that had the look of power but were actually weak, that had the look of joy but actually led to misery, that had the look of this is going to fulfill me and only led to emptiness. So to my kids and to my church family, what former things do you and I need to let go of today? What former things do we need to let go of today? May we confess and may we repent 
May we rejoice that we are met with grace and forgiveness. May we worship Jesus, the risen one, who died and took his life back up on the third day. And in him is where true freedom and good and joy is found. Father God, we love you. I pray that we would be lumps of clay that wouldn't resist that shaping, but we would welcome it. God, we confess that there are rough edges and things to our lives that you are at work in. And so I pray that you would give us this humility of spirit that would welcome that. Continue to grow us as a faith family to walk alongside one another. And may in each of our hearts, may you form us more and more into the image of Christ and may it bring you so much glory and may it serve as a shining light to the world around us. We trust you, we serve you, we depend upon you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.